Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm George Hartman, President of the Canon Business Club at Cornell Johnson. Today, I am pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Carolyn Buckler, an Associate Professor at the School of Integrative Plant Science. Professor Buckler is a member of the Mays Cooperators, the International Network for the Public Communication of Science, and the Association of Science Technology Centers. She led the teaching faculty group to facilitate faculty in transitioning to online learning in response to the pandemic, is a member of the Cornell Institute for Digital Agriculture, and is also the advisor and faculty mentor for the Cornell Student Marijuana Alliance for Research and Transparency Group. While at Cornell, she has been interviewed by Bloomberg Television, The Wall Street Journal, and other national and international press agencies. Professor Buckler helped develop and is the lead faculty member for the School of Integrative Plant Sciences Hemp Masters in Professional Studies program, the first of its kind. Relax and enjoy this episode as Professor Buckler entertains us with her unique background, the history of cannabis, and the current day context of cannabis. I hope you enjoy the episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. Welcome to Present Value. I'm your host, Alex Borwald, and today I'm excited to be speaking with Professor Buckler, an associate professor at the School of Integrative Plant Science. Professor Buckler received her undergrad from California State University and her PhD from the University of Missouri in Molecular Genetics. Professor Buckler has made a career of researching and facilitating holistic understanding of plant science, from genetics, breeding, and digital technologies, to understanding industry and the consumer. She also communicates science effectively to various cultures, demographics, and stakeholders. Professor Buckler has most recently been on Bloomberg on a panel with Paul Larkin from the Heritage Foundation, a think tank out of DC. She is halfway through her seminal course, Cannabis, Biology, Society, and Industry, and we are excited to discuss that amongst other topics with her today. Professor Buckler, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is such a treat. I appreciate it. Of course. To start, you have an unorthodox story, as opposed to the typical academic. Could you walk us through your background and your path to become a maize geneticist and then a professor of practice in communicating plant science? Yes. I grew up in the 60s and 70s. You know, women were basically objects. I was in Los Angeles. I'm blonde. And, you know, I was basically told to look good and shut up. I really didn't have any idea that I could go get a PhD until I was in my mid-20s. I dropped out of high school pretty much as soon as I could when I turned 17 and went on tour with a jazz band, which was a lot of fun and I loved it. But, you know, seeing people like Willie Bobo and Cal Jader and all these folks that were doing a lot of drugs and I just didn't think I could handle it. Luckily, I I was the youngest person in the band, but the guys took really good care of me. When we came home off of a tour, I just decided maybe something else. So... (laughs) I've done a lot of tours. My brother was a chef in Los Angeles and was did quite well for quite a long time. So I got into the restaurant business, moved up to San Francisco Bay Area and got into wine and started teaching about wine and viniculture to waiters in the area. So, and that was quite lucrative. But again, I, it was kind of just frustrating and 
I had gotten an associate's degree when I was in, at Santa Ana College in Southern California. This was after my mom divorced my dad, who God bless him, but wow, is he a misogynist. And <laughs> so my mother went back and got a master's degree in psychology. So she became a professor at Santa Ana College. And I thought, what the heck? I'll go, because I'll, psychology sounds like fun. So I did that. And psychology... And then I graduated my AA in psychology and then looking around for, to get a, a bachelor's, I was talking to some, my stepfather was a professor in physics at UC Irvine, interviewing some faculty members and things, asking, you know, gee, what can I do? And there was a guy named Raman Chandran, who's an absolute rock star now, but he was just starting out in the eighties. I said, wow, neuropsychology, what's that? And he looked at me with his wide eyes. He says, you know what, Carlin? It's like, we study what happens when you get a severe blow to the head and it knocks something out in your brain. I'm like, God, sign me up. So, <laughs> so I got into neuropsychology and that was fun. But neuropsychology has a lot to do with genetics. So then I thought, wow, genetics, that's really cool. All this time I was trying to keep afloat financially. My parents were not well off. My dad had PTSD before anybody knew about PTSD. And my mother, who graduated from USC in business, same degree my, my father did, but it was very, very clear from the family and from my father that she was going to be housewife. And that was it. So after the divorce, again, she went back. And again, the idea that I would be going to college for anything other than a bachelor's really strange for me but I really didn't know where I was going to be going at the time I had some money from the Reagan administration for women in science but literally within a couple of weeks in the middle of my first or second semester Ron decided that women didn't need any money to go to college so I lost my funding that's when I went up to the Bay Area California State University at Hayward which is now I think called like California State University of the East Bay or something much more exotic than Award. I started back to college to get a BS. I didn't know what in. I was not doing well in any of my classes. I was taking a course in genetics and Dr. Chris Baisdorfer, who's still there, was the professor. And one day he came up to me and he says, hey, you want a job in my lab? And I said, do you know what I just got on your midterm? And I just got in a solid C. And he looks at me, you know, I think you just need to contextualize this stuff. So yeah, I mean, long story short, I went into his lab, worked my derriere off, and myself and my lab mates and Chris published a paper on the first cDNA libraries, copy DNAs in plants, which was fantastic. So, you know, you've got DNA. And then this is right at the time when the human genome program is kicking off. And it's like, wow, genetics. I was just entirely mesmerized by the whole thing. After graduating, I got a job at Lawrence Livermore National Labs doing research in male-mediated birth defects. So basically, what a guy can do, whether it's drugs or you know his own genome or whatever, that has an effect on the fetus. DNA in his semen such that the fetus becomes barren at some point. That was really interesting, but I had done this maze genetics work when I was in Chris's lab. And so I thought, wow, graduate school, maybe I could go to graduate school. And ironically in 1992, the Human Genome International Conference was happening in San Francisco. And literally the next week, the very first plant genome, plant and animal, it, it's now plant and animal genome, PAG. But back then it was the first 
plant genome conference was happening in San Diego. So I went to the human genome one and it was fantastic, very glitzy, nice Armani suits, people driving Mercedes and BMWs and having these talks. Well, you know, I could tell you about that, but it's all proprietary, so I really can't. But trust me, this is what it all means. I said, wow, it was very glamorous. And then I went down to San Diego to the plant science group. And it was people in Birkenstocks and ripped up jeans and, you know, oh, you need some of that? You know, I've got some of that DNA. Here you go. And, so, <laughs> and sharing and being really laid back. And I went, you know, okay, these are the people for me. Because I really didn't care whether I was working in animal systems, human systems, or plant system. I was just interested in DNA and how it all worked. So did that, went to graduate school, met my husband the day I interviewed at the University of Missouri at Columbia. <laughs> Took him another year or something to ask me to marry him, but I was with the other graduate students and we were talking about, you know, the people who are interviewing. I was one of them. Hey, you know, how's this professor? How's that professor? And this guy walks in with this, I mean, we were in a tavern of some sort and he walks in with this entourage behind him and he, you know, I can't remember what he said, but he threw his arms up in front of everybody, went blah, 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 blah. And everybody laughed and he sat down and I heard about this guy, you know. Ed Buckler, and I would, I, you know, because I was older, right? I'm 30 when I'm going to graduate school, which is unusual. <laughs> but I would crack some jokes, try to get some levity, because a lot of people were pretty scared, you know, the, the interviewees. And, and so I would say something and everybody, oh, ha, 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 you need to meet Ed Buckler. And after a while, I'm thinking, who is this crackpot? But sure enough, he sits down and he, he looks at me and I look at him and I said, you must be Ed Buckler. <laughs> he goes, yeah, how did you know? <laughs> Anyways, wound up marrying him. I got pregnant. We moved to North Carolina. We both have postdocs at NC State with uh, Michael Peruginen, and it was fantastic. But our child came at 29 weeks, and my mom is 3,000 miles away. Ed's mother passed away, unfortunately, right before our son was born. Everything was fine. I'd gained a ton of weight. And the kid was fine. He was just three pounds, seven ounces. And so I immediately had to stop my postdoc and stay at home with the kid, which was fine. But then you kind of wonder, what am I going to do? Because I know no one. <laughs> so the first year goes by and you know, he's a year and a half year old. And I thought, well, you know, maybe you should play with some of the kids. So went to look around at some daycare centers and found one. And I started volunteering there. And I started kind of hearkening back to my psychology courses. And my mother was a child psychologist. And just observing the kids was amazing. And so, you know, I came to the director and I said, I'm a scientist and I love kids. And would you mind if I did some like science programming for the kids? Oh, yeah, sure. That'd be great. So teaching them about sound and light and water and forces and plants. And it was just such a gasp. And within, I don't know, six or seven months, they just gave me a job. So <laughs> I developed an entire early learning curriculum. And that was great. Got a little tired of North Carolina. There was a lot of racism, still is. Not, it's not quite as bad as when we were there in the late 90s. But we're all about infiltrating the enemy and voting or registering to vote. But once you have a kid, I don't know. That it's, anyways, Cornell offered Ed, my husband, a position, and we moved up there. Our son, Edward, was 
you know, four years old. Of course, the first thing you do is take your kid to the brand new natural history museum that just opened up. So the Museum of the Earth had opened up here in Ithaca. And it's part of the Paleontological Research Institution, which is, it wasn't at the time, but it is now part of Cornell. I remember walking in there and it's brand new and looking around going, wow, this place is amazing, but you guys need money. And I ran across Dr. Rob Ross, who is head of education. And I said, hey, you know, I got a lot of experience doing writing NSF grants and stuff. Do you need anybody to write any grants? And he said, we can't pay you. He's like, I don't care. And so while, while Edward was in school, that's what I did. And this thing that really struck me about working with Rob Ross and another gentleman there, Don Haas, is that before I left in the early 90s, some people in Menlo Park and, you know, north of San Francisco decided eh, we're not going to vaccinate our kids. And I remember thinking at the time, it's like, what? Are you kidding? And energy transitions are starting to become a thing. Climate change is certainly a thing by now, because this is 2003 when we moved up here. Food security, just all these things are hitting. And I was just absolutely amazed at the public misunderstanding of science. And I thought, wow, I can sit in the lab and do all the genetics I want. But if people don't appreciate it, then senators aren't going to fund it. And we're SOL as researchers. So I really wanted to understand the public communication of science. And that's what I learned at the Paleontological Research Institution. These people were just amazing. They still are. And so I did that for about seven, eight years and did a a number of projects and really learned from these people. It's not the deficit model. You know, you don't pour information into somebody's head. Oh, oh, I get it now. You mean vaccines are really good? Oh, okay, that's fine. You mean globe really is warming? Oh, and that's terrible? Oh, okay, I get it. No, that's not how it works. (laughs) You know, homo sapiens are, are tribal beings. So you follow your tribe, even though maybe in your heart, you wonder if this is really right. But the other thing that happened, and I do this thing in my classes, I have a light bulb that's it's a clear light bulb and there's you can see the film inside and yada yada. So I come in and I put the light bulb down on somebody's desk and I say, how does that work? Inevitably, they look at me as if this is a joke, but they say, you know, okay, so the, the electricity comes in here and it lights up the filament there and the electricity comes out the other. And I say, great. And then I pull out my iPhone, I slap that down. And I said, how does this work? <laughs> Nobody ever knows. And I explain like, you know, when I was a kid, my dad had me doing break jobs on a kid, okay, 12, 13, break jobs on the 57 caddy. I knew how to use gum out on the carburetor when it got stuck. I could do oil changes by the time I was in my 20s. If your dishwasher or your your dryer goes on the blink, well, you pull it out and take out the back panel and, oh, it's the something or other, and you just go down to the hardware store and get another one and put it back in. Well, you know, now, (laughs) I just found out the other day, that my toaster has a chip in it. (laughs) But the bottom line is people don't understand the world around them anymore. You know, we used to be able to fix things. We used to be able to understand how a light bulb works. If you'd want to tell somebody like how a fluorescent light works or how, you know, an LED works, you know, you just get a blank stare. We don't know how our cars work. We don't know how the internet works. We don't know how our phones work. And that's scary when you don't understand the world around you. And I get that. These guys, gave me best practices 
and how to get out there and try and change the world. And at one point, we got an email from Dr. Chris Smart, and she is the head of the School of Integrated Plant Science at Cornell. And she said, hey, you want a job? <laughs> I said, you know, I, I don't do genetic, plant genetics anymore. And she said, I know, you want a job. <laughs> so, so I actually was the first person to be hired SIPS-wide. And SIPS is the largest school within CALS. And what she wanted and what they wanted was people, professors to come in and do cross-disciplinary projects throughout SIPS. And she said, look, with your background in plant science and your background in genetics and your background in communications and the work you've done with the public and the work you've done with developing international programs, come here and do that. I said, yeah. And I'm a professor of practice, which is different than being, uh, for lack of a better term, a normal professor. So what that means is I don't have to do research. I can play the whole time. And it's fantastic. So when 2014 Farm Bill came out, and then finally in 2016, we were allowed to horticulture and agriculture research on hemp. And marijuana are being legalized at this point. You know, Colorado is 2016, I think. Other states are coming on board. But the thing was, is it's been illegal. We weren't allowed to do anything. We weren't allowed to touch the plant, literally, <laughs> cannabis sativa. So, you know, we were the first ones out the gate. And that's mostly due to the Cuomo administration. So New York State has been very, very good to Cornell plant science, which is good because we're a huge we have 90-something faculty and researchers. And so if you look at the papers that come out, if you look at where the graduate students go, is if you look at the quality of the faculty and researchers we have in, in the School of Integrated Plant Science, the National Academy members, we're the number one plant science research and education department in the world. So if we didn't do it, <laughs> we had, and again, thanks to New York State, all the resources to just run with it. And so we did. And sort of that's how I got where I am. That's a fascinating story. And you're actually halfway through the class. How's it been going thus far? Oh, it's just, I love students. I really, really love students. It's going very well. It's called Plant Science 4190. It's called Cannabis Biology Society and Industry. I designed it exactly the way I thought it ought to be. And for the Masters of Professional Studies in hemp, it's the first class, they, one of the first classes they take. And we talk about everything from seed to sales. It's not just plant science people. I have about 30% plant science people, but the rest of the people in the course come from the law school, from the Johnson School, from the Dyson School, from human ecology, from international programs, from all over the campus. That's beautiful because... There are people then representing every facet of the industry, right? From understanding the genetics to, you know, understanding the agriculture of it to understanding processing and development of products and supply chains, everything. The course is all project-based. Most of the courses are. So they get to work with each other and like, okay, you've got $500,000. You've got two months to come up with a product. Go. See you in 10 minutes. <laughs> so we get to do all these kinds of really fun things. And I think because of that, 
I'm always just utterly amazed at what the students come up with. And particularly when they're working across disciplines, right? So, you know, somebody knows a little bit about the genetics, but somebody knows, oh, we're going to be growing it here. Well, this is the disease and the pest management pressure we're going to have. And here's supply chains. And, oh, wait a minute. I know people, you know, over here and over there, you know, and, and putting all this stuff together and then presenting it. It's just wild. So, yeah, the class fills up in hours. <laughs> I usually have 70 people in the class. I cap it at 70. But because we were all online this year, I capped it at 30. God, I am so thankful for my job, and I'm so thankful for working with these students. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic experience on both sides. Is there any social stigma associated with, I guess, a professor stepping into the space, given that it is illegal in the federal space? So when we were developing the Master's in Professional Studies in HIP, and when I was developing the class, I'm sure this has become a tall tale now that I'm <laughs> it's been a year, but the lawyers were very concerned because, and well, they should be. Because THC is still a Schedule One drug. Marijuana is a Schedule One drug. And the thing about cannabis, and we used to think that there were certain cultivars of cannabis. That's marijuana. That has THC in it. Oh, this is hemp. This has CBD in it. Or this doesn't have any THC or CBD. Just this co- and that's not the case at all. Now that we're into the genetics, we realize that it's much more complicated than that. So right now, The only clear definition of what marijuana is, any cannabis that has greater than 0.3% THC in it, that's it. If it has lower than 0.3% THC in it, then it's considered hemp. You know, it's very, very difficult (laughs) to maneuver in that space. And for instance, I was told, okay, you can't say the word marijuana in the class. And I'm thinking, (laughs) right. You know, <laughs> can't do that. Of course I have to mention, you know, because it's cannabis, it's cannabis, it's cannabis sativa. It's, <laughs> so that was a little confusing. Okay, okay, I'll take the word marijuana. Oh, you can't talk about how to grow marijuana. And I said, well, I'm going to talk about how to grow cannabis sativa. Well, yeah, but it just can't be marijuana. And I'm thinking, hmm, I think, you know, very close to the start of the course in 2019 fall semester. Oh, you have to take out the word cannabis. Okay, look, <laughs> you know, wait a minute. The course is called Cannabis Biology Society Ministry. You really want me a week before the class to change the name of the class? No, 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 but just get it. Okay, just you have to get rid of the word. Just exchange it for hemp. It has to say hemp throughout the entire syllabus. <laughs> so what I wound up doing was Cannabis Biology Society and Industry. And then instead of switching cannabis or something to hemp, I just said the industry. We're going to be learning about this in the industry. We're going to be learning about entrepreneurship in the industry. We're going to be learning about veterinary science, pharmacology in the industry. And that worked out. So at the time, I kind of was feeling like, oh, really? I can't do that. On the other hand, we didn't lose any federal funding. I didn't go to jail. And (laughs) and my students are safe. So, (laughs) you know, what the heck? I'm really thankful for lawyers. But yeah, it was in the media. That was the other thing. The media just went all over the place. And I'm getting all these threatening, you know, notices from administration and lawyers are like, you can't say the word marijuana. So things were misquoted all over the place. And there was an article about the course in the Wall Street Journal, but they also did this incredible parody of what college life is now that there are courses in weed, right? Ivy League going to the weeds, cannabis course starts. You know what I mean? And 
some people in administration and in lawyers didn't really appreciate that very much. And I really had a hard time convincing them that I didn't say that. <laughs> I never mentioned the M word. So yeah, it's been a wild ride. And just stepping back for a second, can you describe to our listeners what the difference is between THC and CBD? They're both cannabinoids and cannabinoids are found all over the place. Cannabis has over 116 or 100, I can't remember what the last count was, different cannabinoids in cannabis. So there's just a plethora of them. We know about CBD, we know about THC, we're learning about the others, but yeah, they're compounds that work in the nervous system and work on pleasure centers in the brain, THC. CBD is known to calm certain aspects of the nervous system. We know a little bit about the drugs. We need to know a lot more. I think once the funding for research starts to come through, I think there's a very good possibility that we will find a number of ailments and issues that these compounds can help ameliorate. And so I'm waiting for that. (laughs) How did we get to the situation? Like, how did someone determine the 0.03 is a threshold? And also, historically, it's been used as a herb, among other things, for centuries. How is it currently legal or federally legal? How did we get here? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Literally for thousands of years, possibly eight, maybe 10,000 years, humans have been using cannabis. To jump to the punchline as fast as I can, in the United States, it really started with Harry Anslinger. He was a German immigrant, came to the U.S. in 1881, and he worked on the Pennsylvania Railroad. I can't remember what the circumstances were, but there was a $50,000 lawsuit against the wife of someone who worked on the railroad. Anslinger essentially defended the company and saved the company $50,000 because he found out that the suit was fraudulent. He works for the military police on the international drug trade. And by 1930, he is the founding commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. This is a new thing. And at the time, marijuana was still legal. It was considered an evil weed, but At that time, he says, and I quote, there is probably no more absurd fallacy than the idea that marijuana makes people violent. And he published that. So 1932 prohibition ends. You got the League of Nations implementing restrictions on cannabis. And FDR and his attorney general support this idea. And then you start getting the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. But New York City really came to the rescue. LaGuardia questioned the Marijuana Tax Act, he instigated the LaGuardia Commission to come up with a new medical report by the New York Academy of Medicine. It was published in 1944, and there were seven really most important outcomes from that. That marijuana is used extensively throughout the boroughs of Manhattan. Introduction of marijuana into this area is recent compared to other localities. Cost of marijuana is low. And that makes the purchasing really easy for folks. But one of the most important things that they found that was the practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word. And that the use of marijuana does not lead to morphine or heroin or cocaine addiction. And no effort is made to create a market for these narcotics by stimulating practice of marijuana smoking. So that was huge. According to the report, the conclusion was that marijuana was not a gateway drug. So by this point, we're scared of all these people coming into the United States. Much of the drug culture was based on Latinos and African-Americans. 
So it was considered an evil weed. All of this propaganda was brought up about it. So although LaGuardia did a lot of good work, there's a lot of other stuff that happens. And, you know, all the way from the Narcotic Drugs Import Export Act, the Boggs Act, all these mandatory sentencing starts to come in. President Nixon really started what he called the war on drugs in 1971 or two. What's interesting, though, is who is being incarcerated, right? And even today, you know, in 2017, drug law violations for African-Americans is 27%, even though they only make up 13.4% of the U.S. population. And even still today, you know, the ACLU reports that showing that Black people are 3.64 times more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession, despite comparable use. So... White people and black people, according to a number of studies, use marijuana in about the same usage, right? The fact that African-Americans are being incarcerated 3.64 times what white people are is just egregious. So getting back to the courses, a lot of the courses policy, a lot of the courses law, a lot of the courses understanding what people have done with cannabis and to really repress entire sections of the populace, whether it was originally Latinos and Italians and African-Americans, and today it's overwhelmingly African-Americans and Latinos. This is egregious and this is wrong. And when we talk about, ooh, let's get some you know, taxation, on, let's, let's legalize THC, let's get products out there, let's tax the heck out of it, give it to schools. We need to think about the people who have been harmed the worst by this. And that's people of color. And when we look at, you know, these incarceration rates, small amounts getting thrown in prison for years and years, this is, it's entirely egregious. So that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, that's crazy. And thank you for walking us through that. And the repression didn't just happen in demographics. It actually happened in academia as well. There's been very limited research about cannabis, and there's still extensive unknowns about the long-term effects. Can you discuss the current state of cannabis science and education as well as what shifts in each may need to occur to improve the general public's understanding of cannabis? Yeah, that's a lot easier because we've only been doing it for a few years. (laughs) So because marijuana, and that's essentially THC, has been a Schedule One drug, and for a long time, I think CBD was Schedule Two we couldn't do research on it. And if you look worldwide, you know, the the majority of the countries, by far and away, the majority of the countries out there have not legalized marijuana and cannabis. But for the countries that have, they've all done so in about eh, the past seven years, eight years. So we're all in the same boat. It's all, all across the world been, everybody's smoking it, but nobody knows anything about it, is sort of the tagline. So it has been a federal offense. And again, this is why the lawyers were upset, you know, or cautious, I should say. They were cautious about how we started all this research and how the classes are oriented, because it's a federal offense, right? So up until, I don't know, maybe, was it 2016 or something? I I can't remember off the top of my head. There is only one facility in the United States that is legally able to do human research trials on THC and it's University of Mississippi. One institution, that's it. (laughs) And that's the way it's always been, you know, since 2016, whenever they got that dispensation. But that's ludicrous. 
We have some of the most incredible medical uh, testing facilities in the world, and no one else is really doing much about it. And that's just ludicrous because we already know that, you know, CBD can do much for Parkinson's disease, you know, grand mal seizures for, you know, you have a child who has grand mal seizures. CBD has been shown to, to help alleviate those seizures. That's incredible. So these compounds, we really don't know very much about because we haven't been able to do the research. We are just finding out in depth, what are the diseases what are the, that these plants get? What's the horticulture? How do we grow it? What does it need? How much potassium? How much nitrogen? We're getting it all from just in the past few years, which is difficult. It's If you want to go out right now and start growing maize or sorghum or wheat or apples or strawberries or whatever, you can do that, right? We've been doing this for Decades and decades and hundreds of years, we've got all kinds of science behind this. And if your strawberry crop goes down, it's okay. There's crop insurance and better luck next year. Here you go. But, you know, for hemp farming and cannabis farming in general, again, the only difference between hemp and marijuana is 0.3% THC or not. And it used to be we thought that here is this strain, this strain is for marijuana. And here is this strain or cultivar, I should say. And it's hemp. Well, we found it realized that's not exactly always the truth. In other words, sometimes it's an environmental thing that ticks off THC or expression of CBD or THC. And so a farmer can get a bunch of seed, the person who grew the seed swears that, oh, this is hemp. It's just hemp. It's there's no THC at all in it. And all of a sudden, so the DEA has to come out and check the field for THC within 15 days of harvest. For hemp. You know, the DEA comes out and all of a sudden it's, it's 0.7 or, you know, 1% THC. Well, they burn the whole field. And if it's more than 0.5%, you can go to jail. That doesn't happen with strawberries. <laughs> it's just crazy. Things are changing, but it's really, really slow. I can think of no other situation in any science where this has been the case. We've had something right in front of our noses, but we weren't allowed to touch it for hundreds of years. So it's difficult. It's really hard. And because of it, you know, you're talking about communications, the amount of misinformation on CBD and THC is almost overwhelming. And again, we're in a time of our existence where science, as I said before, is more and more complicated. We don't get it. It's very hard to communicate some of these principles. And we're a tribal species. So I get this all the time where students will come up to me and say, you know, my sister was in Afghanistan and she came home with just the worst PTSD and she started smoking some marijuana and she's fine now. I mean, it's amazing. It works. It really works. While I have all the gratitude in the world for that, it's an N of one. And, you know, you find out later, well, okay, she and her husband got back together again. She got pregnant. They're going to have a baby. They have their own house now. It's controlled environments, right, that we just haven't had. But especially now with COVID, there was an article out about dentistry recently. Apparently, dentists are saying that one of the number one problems they have right now, people grinding their teeth. They're so anxious and so worried that, and they've never seen it like this before. Cannabis can calm you down. There's no doubt about that. CBD does not 
cross the blood-brain barrier, but THC does. You know, when you're talking about teenagers and you know, basically people from about age 13, 14 until you're about 24, 25, the whole frontal lobe basically, much of the frontal lobe disconnects from the rest of your brain, right? But frontal lobe is all about reason, right? And so it's being disconnected. Well, THC crosses the blood-brain barrier and it can affect the cannabinoid receptors in your brain. In other words, you know, like clog them up. So, wow, it'd be really good to have some good, some decent research on this. What are the long-term effects? We have no, you know, literally no control studies that tell us what this is doing to the brain of a 13 to 24-year-old. We don't know what the long-term effects are. None of it's regulated, right? You can go down to your CBD store or whatever it is. Or actually, I heard in Man Library, (laughs) or excuse me, Mandibles, which is by Man Library, that you can get, oh, they're called supplements. It has to be a supplement if it's going to have CBD in it. But basically, it's a drink, right? It's like a power drink or something. But, oh, it's got CBD in it. It's like, really? Are you kidding? I'm not so much worried about CBD because it doesn't penetrate the blood-brain barrier. But nobody's regulating any of this stuff. Right. So (laughs) the FDA won't touch it. So for much of these things, we have no idea what's in these products, these tinctures, these oils, these sobs, these drinks, this food, you know, the donuts. Colorado has THC donuts, for God's sakes. And that's a problem. We don't understand the drug. We don't know what really is are in these things that we're consuming. Now, having said that, I think late October 20th or something, Cuomo administration has come out and said that New York Department of Health will be regulating these products now, the ones that are are in New York State. The idea is to make it such that if you're going to sell CBD or THC project, well, you can't do THC yet, but cannabis products in New York State, you have to show from dependent lab what exactly is in that product. Because, you know, and many of us have heard these stories, but, you know, like there's the dad who had, you know, his young child who was teething and he takes a CBD ointment or whatever and rubs it on the kid's gums thinking, oh, this will make it feel better. The kid winds up in the emergency room. They do a test and turns out there was a whopping load of THC in there. So the kid's in intensive care and the, and the dad is in federal prison now. So, you know, it's really important that we have this done. And again, huge kudos to the New York State government and Cuomo that they're thinking about this. So processors will need to get licenses. People who are making these products need to get licenses and everything needs to be labeled. And the oversight on what these products actually are will be done. And that's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds amazing, especially since there's so much uncertainty. And it doesn't look like the FDA is jumping in at at any point. And I know with the Scholastic election, we had five additional states pass medical marijuana legalization. And so we're actually at 34. So I wonder what critical mass is needed for a larger body to step in. But it's great that at a state level, the state's trying to regulate it. Yeah, absolutely. With our present Congress, I doubt anything's going to happen. I mean, Mitch McConnell was into the hemp and agriculture, and I, we really appreciate that. But I will be totally honest, I don't invite myself, but getting THC legal would at least open the doors at the federal level, legal. That would open the doors for us to get federal funding to do research, which is what we really need. So I don't care if people do or don't, but we need data. 
Right, right. Yeah. As you mentioned prior, the end of one doesn't help anyone. And then just to wrap up, would you have any advice for, I guess, future entrepreneurs that want to move into this space? Well, like I was saying, the MPS program, we teach everybody everything from seed to sales. Like I said, you know, you make a mistake growing apples, then you've made a mistake growing apples. You make a mistake in the cannabis industry and you can go to jail. And then even when it's legal, what about reparations for all these people that have been, there's just so much, (laughs) right? There's so much about all this. You really need to know a little bit about the whole industry and then dig down deep on one part of it, entrepreneurship, genetics, supply chains, whatever it is. But you really need a good overview, look at the industry before jumping in, plug your nose and go ahead. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And thank you so much, Professor Buckler, for being with us today on Present Value. It's a pleasure and I've enjoyed our conversation this time and on prior times. Well, thank you so very much. What a pleasure. I love students, so this is great. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Afwa Asantiwa and Eric Joe. I'm your host, Alex Vorwald. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.